Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. We here in the USA are at the cusp of foreign aft officially designated history months of two of the most prejudiced against members of humanity. One, a specific race historically branded as slaves as a result of their black skin color in contrast to European-American albinoness, and the entire gender of women who are dogmatically categorized as secondary and subordinate to the male-dominated explication of human history. A very large number of humanity seems preoccupied only with the here and now, and essentially disregards history in general as quite useless as a guide to any and all contemporary and future affairs. Yet this willful ignorance of the human past would actually thwart awareness of the present and certainly synthesis of how the future might unfold. A college professor once explicated that undue concentration on the past could cripple imaginative ideas of the future, yet Galileo depended on the earlier theories of Copernicus for his own exposition of the universe. The late Paul Songus, a Democratic senator who campaigned for the presidency three decades ago in the previous millennium, hit a good note when he said that American politics are supposed to protect, preserve, and strengthen the heritage of our vaunted ancestors and pass it on to our successors. That is what it is all about, he said, recalling his nearly fatal bout with cancer, which he said prompted him to think about the earlier generations of Americans. He didn't mention race or gender. What they attempted failed and succeeded, and as a result of them, we early millennials are what and who we are, despite bitter continuing entanglements with legacy sexism and racism. Our past still lies ahead of us, historian Lewis Mumford once wrote. Or perhaps, as Richard Stengel wrote, our future lies behind us. The 1960s might be recalled in that regard, as a pertinent revival of a worthy future for humanity, and that a premature expiration was pronounced upon the revolutionary rebellion of its youth, who reacted to an irrational war that threatened to annihilate their generation through enforced conscription. Yet, for a brief moment, their resistance was a radical re-enlightenment of liberty, justice, and ethical lifestyles. The feminist and gay liberation movements grew out of that rowdy period, as did the growing concerns about environmental despoilation and public antipathy toward the nuclear arms race, as well as warfare in general. And also, quite decidedly, the advent and growth of public media has been a legacy of the baby boomer revolution. Listener-sponsored media such as Free Radio Columbia Pacific KMUN 
which celebrates its 40th anniversary on the air this April 17th. But the white hippie rebellion seldom embraced black power. In regard to Black History Month, which ends this next Tuesday and is superseded the next day by Women's History Month, my friend for life from the Vietnam War, Julius Maxwell Belcher, suggested on a phone call from his home in Massachusetts that I include on this last program of Black History Month an editorial I wrote as editor of a USMC-based newspaper in Iwakuni, Japan, following a year in Vietnam as a Marine Corps combat reporter with infantry and recon. Max was also a jarhead journalist, and we were often on the same infantry incursions into VC country, Viet Cong, in case you forget what VC stands for, in 1966. The base paper was called The Tory Teller and was the last I wrote because I was immediately shipped stateside after refusing a direct order from the base commanding officer not to print it. My friend Max Belcher was born in the USA and raised in Liberia, Africa, which the USA colonized with freed or escaped black slaves American whites wanted shipped out of the USA in the early 19th century. Max is a stew of heritages. He is black African, half-breed white, Jewish, and Polak, a hunky, one of a vast array of sub-prejudices of the human heart and mind, at least of Atlantic Coast Europeans and too often their American descendants. Max returned to the USA for college but was spurned and enlisted in the USMC. We were both in Vietnam when U.S. cities erupted in violent riots in black ghettos and threatened to spread onto overseas U.S. military bases. Iwakuni, Japan, was no exception. Against direct orders, I wrote an editorial in the base newspaper about the threatened incipiency of race war between overseas Marines, which precipitated my enforced evacuation stateside. I believe I have read this on the air a couple of times, yet it seems to me as pertinent half a century after I wrote it as it was then in a previous millennium. Racial antipathy is a festering cancer, never fully in remission. the sound of guns. Their fierce staccato dominated the background as the news broadcaster described the action. You can hear the sounds of automatic weapons. There's a profusion of them here. They are returning fire against snipers, trying to clear them out. Vietnam? Unfortunately, no. Newark, New Jersey. Another race riot in a sweltering bloody tradition of riots, leaving its dead behind like scattered cigar butts. For three years, the riot-torn summers have filled the newspapers, and subsequently, the worried minds of millions of confused Americans of every race. Judgment of these riots must, with all of their reasons, their passions, conditions, bloodshed, 
and destruction and unanswered questions must be left to the conscience of humanity individually and collectively and to history. What concerns us here is the immediate effect they may have on the armed forces, both black and white alike, who must live and work together, and in the extreme instance of Vietnam, must fight and possibly die together. Ironically, they fight together for what they have been told is for the freedom of someone else, and yet they cannot escape the reality of strife among their races at home. The civil rights movement somewhat parallels the situation in Vietnam. You cannot force people to change their minds. However, in this particular instance, wrongs demand their redress. We as a nation are waging war because our leaders say it must be done for that reason. We cannot then expect otherwise, however right or wrong, from those within our society who have been wronged. If the military might be the only demonstrative proof of equality among the races, then use this unique position you are in to show the people back home it can be done. For God's sakes, do not regard one another as enemies. As you look upon one another, embarrassed and wary, perhaps angry and suspicious because of these recent riots, do not forget for one instant that you are all Americans, that to these people in Japan and other countries, you are nothing else. I have questioned you throughout the base and in the town where you have lamentably segregated yourselves into two districts, one black, one white, and you are ready to blow the lid off because you think it's inevitable. Can't you understand you are making it inevitable by believing it is inevitable, waiting for that one spark to set you at each other's throats? I am not concerned here in this article with the rights and wrongs of your beliefs or prejudices. Here I am pleading with you to cool it because I don't want to see you tearing up a third people's real estate. The Japanese have had to put up with enough from us already without getting clobbered on the periphery of a racial struggle 5,000 miles away. Face it, who will be hurt the most if you let this thing explode here? You or the Japanese sucked into the cyclone. You know damned well it will be the Japanese. Is it right for a third race to suffer because some hardheads from two others can't get along? Some of you do not like the Japanese. But admit it, those of you who do not generally don't like anybody other than yourselves and those who are most like you, whether you are black or white. That is what bigotry is all about. Look around you, in your barracks, in the hangars, on the flight line, and maybe you'll discover the truth of the old saw that no argument is entirely black or white. Look around you. And you will see, for the first time perhaps, that you are also Japanese-American, you are Chinese-American, Mexican-American, American-Indian. My God, the stew of you is infinite, and some of the roots are here in this land. Think about that before you cross that line. That can only lead to your own self-destruction, 
and the destruction of everything you hold dear. And that's what I wrote on 31 July 1967 for the USMC uh, Marine Air Base Iwakuni base paper, the Tory Teller. And I was deported from Japan as a result of that article. And now, Letter from a New York Jail by Matthew Scher. In the fall of 2009, an unusual package arrived at the Benicki Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University. Inside was a leather-bound journal and two packets of loose-leaf paper, some bearing the stamp of the same Berkshire mill that once produced Herman Melville's writing stock. Joined together under the title, The Life and the Adventures of a Haunted Convict, the documents told the story of an African-American boy named Rob Reed, and that's in quotes, who grew up in Rochester, New York, and had been convicted in 1833 while still a child of arson. Reed spent nearly six years in the House of Refuge, a juvenile home in Manhattan, he was released in 1839, but accused of theft, he was soon behind bars again, this time in New York's Auburn prison. Reed never denied his guilt, but he was appalled by the conditions at the House of Refuge and especially at Auburn, an early example of the so-called silent detention model, which would become the basis for the modern prison system. Inmates labored by day and spent their nights cooped up, often alone, in a small cell. In Reed's day, the slightest infraction was grounds for a lashing or a trip to the showering bath, quote-unquote, which was an early take on waterboarding. The high and noble mind which God had given me was destroyed by hard usage and a heavy club, Reed laments. His account ends in 1858 with his discharge from Auburn. The big question was what exactly we were looking at, says Caleb Smith, a literature professor at Yale and one of three experts asked by the Benecki to evaluate the manuscript. Was it a novel? Was it a memoir? An expert in prison literature, Smith felt sure that the book was written by someone with first-hand knowledge of 19th-century correctional facilities. And if Haunted Convict was a genuine account, it would be groundbreaking, the earliest known narrative penned by an African-American prisoner. Moreover, it had been unearthed at a propitious time. Nationwide criticism of a costly and overcrowded prison system was growing, as was anger at soaring incarceration rates especially among young black men. Smith set out to verify the manuscript, which had come to the Benecki via a rare book dealer who had purchased it at an estate sale. In the New York State Archives, Smith found a House of Refuge file for an arsonist named Austin Reed. Enclosed were two letters he instantly recognized. With the help of Christine McKay, 
then a genealogist at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Smith combed through 19th century census documents. Austin Reed, born around 1823, was listed as mulatto. His mother was a laundress. His father died when he was young. He had brothers and a sister. It all lined up. Subsequent tests on the age of the paper and ink confirmed the document's authenticity. Random House published Haunted Convict in March 2016, with the text reserved largely as Reed wrote it. Smith, who contributed to the book's foreword, taught literature to inmates at Connecticut's Cheshire Correctional Institution, and he shared the manuscript with his students there. They recognized the early roots of racialized policing and incarceration, which has persisted into the 21st century, Smith says. They identified with Reed's anger and his desire to speak truth to power, to show the world what was happening behind prison walls. And that was Letter from a New York Jail by Matthew Scherer. And he wrote it for Smithsonian Magazine. And now, by Janai Nelson. Ron DeSantis wants to erase black history. Why? An unrelenting assault on truth and freedom of expression in the form of laws that censor and suppress the viewpoints, histories, and experiences of historically marginalized groups, especially black and LGBTQ communities, is underway throughout the country, most clearly in Florida. The state's Department of Education recently rejected a pilot advanced placement African-American studies course from being offered in Florida's public high schools. Under Governor Ron DeSantis's Stop Woke Law, which would limit students and teachers from learning and talking about issues related to race and gender, Florida is at the forefront of a nationwide campaign to silence black voices and erase the full and accurate history and contemporary experiences of black people. The NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Inc., the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU of Florida, and Ballard Spar filed a lawsuit on behalf of university professors and a college student opposing the Stop Woke Law, and along with a second lawsuit, won a preliminary injunction blocking Florida's Board of Governors from enforcing its unconstitutional and racially discriminatory provisions at public universities. Florida's rejection of the course and Governor DeSantis's demand to excise specific subject areas from the curriculum stand in stark opposition to the state-issued mandate that all students be taught quote, the history of African Americans, including the history of African peoples before the political conflicts that led to the development of slavery, the passage to America, the enslavement experience, 
abolition and the contributions of African Americans to society, unquote. While litigation continues, the various provisions of Stop Woke and now the rejection of AP African American history could have devastating and far-reaching effects on the quality of education for Florida's 2.8 million students in its public K-12 schools. The same reasons that the Stop Woke law is blocked from enforcement in university settings hold for elementary and secondary schools. As a federal judge ruled in November, a law strikes, quote, at the heart of open-mindedness and critical inquiry, unquote, such that, quote again, the state of Florida has taken over the marketplace of ideas to suppress disfavored viewpoints, unquote. Governor DeSantis' Stop Woke Law relegates the study of the experiences of black people to a prohibited category. The canceling of any student's access to accurate, truthful education that reflects their diverse identities and that of their country should chill every American. Not only do these laws offend First Amendment freedoms of speech and expression, to the extent they harm certain groups on the basis of race, gender, or other protected status, they also violate principles of equal protection, and they are a chilling precursor to state-sponsored dehumanization of an entire race of people. The losses to our nation, if this broad attack on our shared history is allowed to continue, are incalculable. Not only will it breed a generation of Americans indoctrinated by ignorance, it will deny them the analytical skills to understand the complex history of this experimental democracy, as well as the historical grounding to sustain it. Students will arrive at institutions of higher learning wholly ill-equipped to engage with the historical foundations of this country, which include and are inextricable from the history of black Americans. Moreover, it will deny future generations the full story of turmoil and triumph that is America. It will also sow the racial divisions that enable white supremacy, which the FBI has identified as a major domestic security threat to thrive. The good news is that most Americans oppose policies like book bans and support teaching the history of race in America, positions that indicate they value and understand the importance of truth. However, we must also respond to the urgency of this moment. While civil rights lawyers won't rest in our fight against Stop Woke and similar laws in courts and state legislatures across the country, we all have a role to play. It starts with recognizing what is happening. This is bigotry and erasure aimed at robbing America's children of their educational birthright and all of us of a better shared future. Recognize what is happening, call it out, and resist erasure. And that was 
Ron DeSantis wants to erase black history. Why? And Janai Nelson is the president and director counsel of the Legal Defense Fund. And she wrote this for the New York Times. And now, three poems sent to me by Susie McCleary, by Hope Kider, and titled Astoria Maritime Memorial. Drifting in the dark at the edge of the world, at one with the work while others sleep, as all around the water swirled, soft sifts the net through the moonlit deep of a freshet of fish, with a prayerful wish to seek the shoals of salmon. Mother of rivers, your rhythm runs in my blood. The wither beckons this seductive urge to taste the one true water on the flood. Is fate but to follow this pulsing surge, yet fresh like the fish, an undying wish to seek the shoals of salmon. The call of the mermaid took them on out to the bleak afternoon of a January sea. We're taking on water, came the dim shout, and the spit called the peacock hardily. Hours were wasted on a position not true as the tide came around to hard ebb. The triumph took over to tow her on through the roaring bar where death weaves its web. The glass was still falling, howling a blow, and the seas mounted up to the sky. A breaker swept in and sent them below, both rescued and rescuers there to die. An old 36-motor lifeboat turned about for the light ship to save, battered and beaten, but yet still afloat. Her crew delivered, then sank neath the wave. So here's to our surfmen and brave airmen, too. Nor valor nor daring do they lack. Here's to the triumph and her gallant crew. They went out, but they didn't come back. Weep not for me that I go to sea. I shan't be lonely, though vastness surround me. The brotherhood of the sea shall be my family, the kinship of the deep my company. Weep not for me, nor worry over harm. My heart stays with you, still and warm. In sunrise and starlight, my hearth and home, I carry you with me wherever I roam. Weep not for me, whether bad luck or good, Tossed about in a shell of steel and wood, an ancient salt sea sails within my blood. I but follow its tides through ebb and flood. Weep not for me that I go to sea. In the limitless ocean, I am free. And those were three poems by Hope Kider. And these three pieces were written for interpretive panels incorporated in the Astoria Maritime Memorial, a project of the city of Astoria, Oregon. And these were sent to me by Susie McCleary, pioneer of KMUN-FM, Ghost Community Radio, which, of course, is having its 40th anniversary on April 17th. This is Michael McCusker. Dylan Hauser-Schalk is engineer 
for this program. A splendid gesture that Joe Biden visited the president of embattled Ukraine on American President's Day, which essentially made it a bit more epical than the usual stale homage to dead presidents. Only Abraham Lincoln visited an active fire zone as president, which for the first time since the British trashed Washington, D.C. during the War of 1812, Confederate forces threatened the nation's capital late in the Civil War. Future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Union Army Officer Oliver Wendell Holmes, son of the poet, shouted at Lincoln to, Get your head down, you idiot! Not recognizing the president when Lincoln drew fire on the Potomac River Bridge. And on a sort of personal note, Lyndon Baines Johnson visited Vietnam in 1966 while I was in country in the USMC. He pinned a Navy cross on a friend of mine, Gunnery Sergeant Clovis Kaufman, and a Distinguished Service Cross on an Army guy. But that was at Cameron Bay, which was so large and essentially secured that Viet Cong would have had to put a zip code on any artillery they might have used to cancel the president's ticket.